Hey gang, this is Pastor Eric Sorensen. I'm coming to you today in the middle of Herald Square. So uh, you can see all around me, it is busy, it is active, it is filled to the brim with life. I'm coming to you a little late today, but uh, I have meetings going on uh, early in the morning, had to get out and about, and so um, better late than never, right? So uh, the passage today and next week that we're gonna be looking at is focusing entirely on marriage. And as anyone who's married knows, there is a lot that can be said about that topic. But before we get to the commands, uh, Peter issues to both uh, wife and husband in our passage, I wanted to spend today first discussing the context of the passage, and then, and then we'll get to sort of the meat of this, okay? Uh, and if you can't hear me, by the way, let me know if the traffic and the noise is too loud. Just let me know. But um, So first, quickly, context of the passage for Peter when he's talking about marriage. Uh, you have to go all the way back to verse 11 of chapter 2. Uh, there, Peter has just declared full-throatedly that they, who he's writing his letter to, are those who have received abundant mercy and whom God has made into new then he switches gears to what our lives should look like, saying, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay then, Peter, what does that actually look like? How does God help us to abstain from the passions of our flesh? Well, Peter goes on to say that he uses our various callings and vocations in life. So first in verses 14 through 17, he talks about our calling as citizens and how we are to obey the law and to be subject to those who govern us. Then he moves on to our calling as workers, as employees or servants to masters in that context. Uh, would be better in our context to say like supervisor, basically what it means. And today then he moves on to the vocation of marriage. And this is the passage, verses 1 through 7, reads like this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's it. That's the end of the reading. Uh, before I get into the meat of the passage, let's just frame a little bit what marriage is supposed to be. Um, our culture has a number of different answers for that. Uh, I think you see often in film the endless honeymoon picture of marriage. 
Some of you are familiar with this one. The Endless Honeymoon picture shows basically, you know, the culmination of a romance and it ends, uh, the movie ends in a, usually a romantic comedy with them about to get married, leaving the viewer to believe that the couple will go on living happily ever after. There's also the opposite of that presented in our culture, which might be more popular now, which is the prison sentence view of marriage. Um, the idea that marriage is basically just some long, hard slog that you have to get through and that you probably should never have done anyway because it's life-draining and doesn't allow you to be as free as you possibly could be. And then there's, I think, a very common one as well. There's the business partnership one. Uh, frankly, I hear this an awful lot. It basically sounds like this. We share the duties, everything, 50-50. Our marriage is 50-50. To which my response is, are you running a business together? Uh, I mean, 50-50 ain't bad. It's just not nearly enough in God's economy of marriage. And then I think uh, the last one that's pretty common in our culture is the orphanage view of marriage. And what this, I, I think a lot of people get caught up in this in the church too, and it essentially is that marriage exists for the purpose of raising them kids. You gotta raise them kids. And so kids' schooling and sports and friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, take over their whole lives, and there just isn't really any time left over for one another at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day or at any part of the day. And so, you know, that's sort of our culture's view, but the, the Bible's view is actually pretty simple. Bible's view of marriage is that it's supposed to be a picture of the relationship that Christ has to his church and that the church has to Christ. That's the idea behind biblical marriage, is that it's supposed to picture that incredible relationship between Christ and his church. If you don't believe me, go look at Ephesians 5 where Paul literally says that's exactly what marriage is supposed to be. That was its design from the beginning. So, with that as backdrop, first, what are wives called to do? Well, first it says, do not seek to rule over your husband. One of the results of uh, humanity's fall into sin was that the relationship between man and wife would be marred, would be scarred. And so God says to the woman in Genesis 3, verse uh, 16, he says, as a result of sin, your pain, you're going to have more pain in childbearing, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the word for desire there is actually the same word used in the very next chapter, where Cain is told that sin is desiring to master him. In other words, what we are hearing from God is that Eve was constantly going to be tempted to want to rule or subjugate her husband, but will also be constantly frustrated at her inability to do so. And so Peter tells wives, instead, be subject to your husbands. Now, uh, I will be the first one to admit, this language is just downright offensive to modern Western ears. In our culture, the thought of someone being subject, frankly, to anyone else for any reason, or willfully subordinating oneself for the sake of a greater good is almost anathema. It is unconscionable. Peter then goes on even to give examples of godly women 
referring to their husbands as Lord. I mean, this is just as scandalous as it gets. Don't worry, ladies, you don't have to call your husband Lord. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it actually, that word there carries more of the meaning of sir or mister. Um, but why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because their husband is deserving of such reverence because he's so awesome? No, not necessarily. Rather, in, in this context, it's so that even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct, Peter says. In other words, your husband is not going to be won over, Peter says, to the faith. And that's what this is really focusing on for wives here. By you shaming him into coming to church or by manipulative sorts of power plays, but he just might be persuaded by you in due time if you respect him and if you you treat him well. That's the idea that Peter's saying. I mean, that's really what he's getting at here. If you want to win over your husband to the faith, that's what he's hitting at. It's not going to happen by arguments and by anger and by fighting. Now, um, so for those married to unbelieving husbands, and I would imagine some that watch this are, is this easy? Well, no, it can be challenging. Uh, is this even possible for you to do well apart from the Holy Spirit? No, it's not. But is it possible to do? Yes. Have I seen it done? Yes. I have seen uh, people's spouses come into the faith after many, many months or years of, a, of the other believing spouse just loving them and respecting them and treating them with honor. And it has indeed had an impact. It does, in fact, uh, God has used that. And so I have seen it in my life before. Now, let me give this disclaimer, very important. This command does not, does not apply to situations in which the husband is abusive or unfaithful or has abandoned you. 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19 are very clear about that. In those situations, the wife is free to separate and in some cases, divorce. That's just the reality. Um, so you don't, that you're not bound to this forever. Not at all. If the husband is any of those things, abusive, uh, uh, adulterous, or has abandoned you. Okay, then Peter moves on. Secondly, for wives, he says, don't, the second thing, don't depend on your looks. This is what he says. Um, I am not saying, and neither is scripture, that wives shouldn't seek to look physically attractive to their spouse. It's not what he's talking about. But when Peter tells wives that they, quote, shouldn't let their adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, he's not literally forbidding those activities. As if someone who wears nice clothes or that braids their hair is in great sin and rebellion against God. That's not the case. What he's doing is he's making a contrast. He's saying, not, don't let your primary adorning be that, but let your primary adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In other words, it's, it's Peter saying, it's not about using your beauty, your outward beauty, your, which is for all of us temporal, but what is gonna last is what's inside, the beauty that God is transforming from the inside, your heart. Let that be the thing 
that uh, that identifies you and that defines you more than anything else as a wife, um, even more than outward appearance. And then thirdly, he says, do not fear to wives. And this little command at the end of the passage I find most interesting and frankly most puzzling. I'm not quite sure why he says it. Well, I mean, it doesn't quite make sense. He says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, but I think, in short, I believe it's another way of saying, place your trust ultimately in the Lord. I mean, so ultimately, the one you're trusting in in marriage is not your husband primarily, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one that you're looking to for your life and your significance and your meaning, and not your husband. Your husband is, is merely a means, is a gift to serve, but your husband is not God. That's the nature, I mean, frankly, you know, it could be when he talks about fear here, or not fearing, it could just mean, like with any relationship, there's always going to be the fear of getting hurt, right? I mean, one of my favorite quotes is from C.S. Lewis, who points out that, that the nature of any relationship worth pursuing is that both people have the chance of being hurt by the other. That's frankly, that's the risk of love. That is the risk when you enter into marriage. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless. It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So that's what I think Peter is alluding to, is that it might be fearful for you, you know, especially to, quote, subject yourself to your husband, to submit to another person as marriage calls us to do. But the only way that you can love anybody is by submitting in some way or another. And that goes for both men and women, by the way, but in different ways. So let's get to that. What does a husband do? In verse seven, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what should good husbands seek to do? Well, first, understand their wives. The word there in Greek is the same word we use for knowledge. And the idea that's being conveyed is that the husband is called to seek to know his wife, to have insight about what makes his wife tick. He is to invest in her. He is to actively take notice of her. The husband is called to dwell with her, actively seeking to be sensitive to her needs in all things, sexually, mentally, physically. That's what's connotated in the word understand her. Secondly, we're told the husband should show honor to his wife. Now again, the word in Greek could be translated into something a little more vivid, something more like precious. Husbands, how do you let your wife know that she's important to you? That's the question you ask yourself. And this goes back to the first point. You seek to understand her and then do for her what she likes. It doesn't assume 
that because you told her once that you loved her at the altar when you were married, that therefore you don't have to say it anymore. But you tell her all the time of how much she is valuable to you. When I think of this, I can't help but think of my grandfather growing up. My grandfather, I can remember well into his 80s and my grandmother well into her 80s. Uh, when, when my grandmother would walk in the room, my grandpa would nudge me on the shoulder and say very loudly for her to hear, hear it. Look at her, isn't she just hot stuff? Isn't she just beautiful? I mean, my, my grandpa was 80 plus years old and she would hear it and she would still blush in her 80s, you know? I mean, my, my grandpa was the man, he was smooth. He knew, <laughs> but he knew how to make my grandma feel precious by telling her those things. And finally, Peter goes on to why husbands should do this. And, you know, I could just say, well, because God said so. But no, he gives two reasons. First, he says, since they are heirs with you of grace. Now, the reason you seek to understand your wife and show her she is precious is not because she is somehow less than you, which is a common misunderstanding of the way to read this verse, where it says, dwell with her as the weaker vessel. That has nothing to do with this at all. Weaker in this context is really only talking about the physical body. I mean, there's nothing nothing else that's weaker mentally or spiritually. And part of the reason we say that is because the passage refers to the wife as a co-heir. Co-heir of the grace of God. Just like men. By the way, in that day, this would have been scandalous to put the wife and the husband on the same level as a co-heir of grace. Would have been absolutely progressive and transgressive to society. And then finally he says, uh, gives this reason so that your prayers might not be hindered. The other reason Peter gives for husbands understanding and honoring their wives is that their prayers might not be um, messed up. Now this this doesn't mean uh, necessarily uh, that God is, you know, if you're not treating your wife well, that you forfeit your ability to pray to God and he'll hear you. But rather it, it means that in, in fact, um, that since you're not the perfect husband and you're not going to always do it right, that you need to keep on praying. That if you dwell too much on your, uh, if you dwell too much on on trying to do everything without being in constant prayer, then you're not going to be doing this very effectively as a husband. That's the idea being conveyed. So on top of when it all comes down to it, this is a very 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 short synopsis of marriage. Why are we called to do all this? Husbands, wives, why this subjection and sacrifice language that you find in, say, Ephesians 5 and this passage where husbands are called to do this and wives are called to do that? Because this is precisely what Christ does for us. There's all sorts of passages in the New Testament that talk about Christ willfully subjecting himself just like wives are called to do. In his life, he willfully subjects himself all the way to the cross. He doesn't speak and defend himself. He willfully subjects himself. Why? For our salvation, his bride's salvation. And yet also, what the husband is called to do is also what Jesus does when it says that the husband is to sacrifice and honor and adorn his bride and love his bride. So there's this... So basically what we're being called to do is what Christ has done for us he willfully sacrifices his life for 
for those who do not deserve it. And that's ultimately uh, our goal in marriage is that we're not doing, we're not loving our spouse because they necessarily have earned it, but we're trying to show them love because of how much we have been loved ourselves by Jesus Christ. All right, so that is a very short, very temporal um, talk on marriage. Hope it's been helpful. I hope you could hear me in the midst of all the chaos around me here in Herald Square in New York City. Have a wonderful week. God bless you.